0: Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. As we close out this series in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, as I was reading through the passage, I thought, you know, it's hard to say goodbye, isn't it? That's kind of what Paul is doing. He's, he's said some hard things. He's spoken a lot of truth, and it's hard to say goodbye. And, and as my kids have grown, this has become definitely a, a reality to me. I remember as a, a young person and moving out of the house and seeing my parents less and things that my dad would do with me and how he would challenge me. And so I wanted to do the same types of things with my kids. And we had the privilege of getting to be with all three of our children at one time in one place. Uh, A few weeks ago as they came to the state for a wedding, and boy, it's hard to say goodbye, you know? And you hug them, and and sometimes goodbyes are long and drawn out. Moms, especially. Uh, Dad sometimes is like, love you, you know? And, um, but I want to speak truth to them. And so I'll hug them and I'll just, I'll whisper something to them in that moment, you know, keep walking strong with Jesus or, you know, I'm proud of you as you pursue God's call in your life. And, you know, just something where I'm just encouraging them, but it's like, now go, go do what God's called you to do. Um, it's been true to say goodbye, uh, airports. If, if you travel a lot, you've seen people saying goodbye at airports, haven't you? Uh, I remember back before 9-11 and TSA and all that, and used to be able to go to the gate. Anybody remember that? You used to actually go to the gate with people and, oh, don't leave. <laughs> Make sure you call as soon as you get home or send a message by carrier pigeon or, you know, <laughs> something. And... and uh, But um, so through the years, and I'm not sure how all this came about, but some airports have started to incorporate kiss and fly zones. I don't know if you've seen these at all amidst your travel. Here's a picture of one that uh, is literally a kiss and fly zone. It's like drop them off, kiss, and just get out on your way, you know. Um, When I was reading about this, because this is over like in in Norway or something, um, five years before this picture was taken, there was no time limit. It, just, it was just a kiss-and-fly zone, so it made me wonder what happened in this zone that they eventually had to start going, Hey, look, you got three minutes, pal, and then you just got to get going. Um, but it's hard to say goodbye, and so as we draw this to a close, Paul is saying goodbye, at least in this letter. We know that he writes a second letter to the, to the church in Corinth. Um, but here he's saying goodbye, and it's been kind of tough. It's sort of been a tough love kind of a letter he's rebuked, he's corrected, he's given instruction, he's been teaching. Some things have been a little bit harder. He's affirmed them with some things. He said, you're doing these things well, but these things, uh, you got to get this together. And so he's been speaking some hard truth to them. And so as I looked at these last 12 verses that we're going to look at, beginning in verse 13, I see Paul hitting three things really fast one kind of external how are you dealing with people outside the church second how are you dealing with people inside the church and then Paul just lays out this beautiful uh, affection of his love and his grace so look with me if you would beginning in verse 13 as Paul writes four very abrupt could be somewhat curse almost like a drill sergeant look what he says he says be watchful stand firm in the faith act like men be strong Can't you hear these things from a dad to his grown son as he leaves? Yes? Yes? Okay, yeah, right? Just those quick whispers, pat on the back, pat on the shoulder. Hey, listen, be watchful, stand firm. Be a man, stand strong. Well, you know, if we simply look at the words that way, we we miss the point of what Paul is instructing. So let me just break those four down for us, can I, just really quick? Be watchful. This phrase literally means to be awake. Uh, or to be on alert, Uh, it implies an idea of discernment, that as you are growing in Christ, listen, church in Corinth, as you're growing in Christ, learn to have discernment. Be watchful. Be awake. Take care over the things. Some of the instruction that he's just given you, hey, use discernment, right? We've talked a lot about liberty and things that you are allowed to do. You have, yeah, you have the freedom to do these things, but you probably shouldn't do these things. Why? Because you're affecting the rest of the body of Christ. Use discernment, Be cautious is kind of what he's saying. Be watchful, because what you do affects people outside the church. How you live your life on mission when you leave here today, and as you go to work tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and all the things you do, people are watching. Use discernment. Be careful. Be awake. And the Bible helps us to be consistently aware of what's going on both in us and around us. I heard a guy say one time that uh, when you look at culture, you could divide people into three categories. There are those who make things happen. There are those who watch things happen. Then you have the vast majority who have no idea of what's going on. And sometimes in church life, it can be the same way. And we have to be careful. In essence, Paul is kind of saying, look, don't be ignorant to the masses. Don't be ignorant so that you're so oblivious to what's going on around you. As one great old preacher said one time that I heard, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, right? Don't be so caught up in, in your, your life and, and the future of heaven that you miss the point of what God has for you right now. Then he says, stand firm in the faith. You know, it's one thing to hear the truth of the gospel, but it is a completely different thing to receive it. And Paul, as he has challenged the church in Corinth, he's laid out some rather harsh truths, and he's spoken very honestly and and pretty direct to them. And he said, look, you have to grow in the faith. You have to know the Word in order to stand in the Word. If this is the only diet of God's truth that you are, are taking in on Sunday mornings, you're missing the point of the feast, But if you're going to try to live on this for the rest of the week, you're missing the point of this love relationship that God has. You are to stand firm in the faith, which means you have to know the faith. You have to know the truth of God's word. You have to take it. You have to live it as the psalmist uh, had told us, right? I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against God. How are you standing firm in the faith? I love the great old preacher Vance Havner actually born a North Carolina boy, and he said one time, in spite of all the confusion on the subject, you have a will and a solemn choice of standing or not standing on the Word of God. To be sure, it is all of God. Let's get that. God gives you air and lungs to breathe it, but you must do the breathing. He gives you truth and the capacity to believe it, but you must do the believing. See, God can equip us, and he can give us wisdom as Paul has laid this out. But it's up to you and I to begin to live it, and that's what Paul is saying. Look, he says, be watchful, be alert, be awake, be discerning, and stand firm in the faith. Live out the things that you say that you believe. Then he jumps on, and and he says, act like men. Boy, that that can sound a little bit abrupt. Let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying man up. He's not saying, you know, don't be in touch with your feminine side. Don't be sensitive. Act like a man. He's not saying women are too weak. This is not a sexist statement at all, right? Literally what he's saying here in the Greek tense is, is really to conduct oneself in a manly or a courageous way or to grow up in the faith, to act like a mature individual. So he's not isolating just men here. He's simply saying, look, it's it's time to grow up. He's he's dealt with this in his letter. If you remember all the way back to chapter 2, beginning in verse 14 and working down into chapter 3, Paul said, I can't deal with you as spiritual or mature, but as mere infants in Christ. In other words, they've known the truth, but they're not growing in the truth. They, They have it, but they're not growing up in it. Paul, numerous times in his pastoral epistles to churches, numerous times did he say, hey, look, by now you should be teaching others, but you still require the milk of the Word. You should be feeding someone else. You should be enjoying steak, and yet I still have to give you the milk of the Word. By now you should be teaching and instructing, but no, you still have to sit and take it in. And so as Paul has already challenged this church, hey, it's time to mature. It's time to grow up in the faith. In three decades of public ministry and serving with churches and ministry, I have watched a lot of people grow old in the faith and never grow up in the faith. And I was there for, for a while. And, and there's even seasons in my life where it's like, Dave, you're sort of in a stall and, and it's time to grow a little bit more. Many of you have been around church for a long time and you, there's really not a progression of growth. You may still be a spiritual infant as I got to Just love on little Evelyn back here as as a precious little infant. That's great, but we don't want her to stay that way forever. Mom and dad don't want her to stay that way forever, to constantly be fed, to constantly be changed. No, the, the expectation is that you grow up in Christ to spiritual childhood, to spiritual young adult, to spiritual maturity, where you begin to replicate and pour your life into others. And that's what Paul is saying. He's, look, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Grow up. To maturity in Christ. He told the church in Ephesus the exact same thing in Ephesians chapter 3. He said, To be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. There's this process as we're growing that we begin to strengthen ourselves, which leads us to be strong. Right? If we're gonna act like men, if we're gonna grow up, we build ourselves in strength. Paul is not interested in simply physical strength. He's alluded just a couple of chapters ago to the Isthmian games. And, but he's not concerned about, you know, how, how far can you schlep this stone or how fast can you run or how long could you stand in the boxing arena of the Isthmian games. He's not talking about physical strength. He's talking about a spiritual strength as they grow into Christ. The great preacher Dio Moody once said, he said, our strength doesn't lie in ourselves, it lies in our Redeemer, Amen? Our spiritual strength is in Christ. He's our redeemer. If my strength is in God, he will give me all power. If my strength is in myself, I will be constantly tumbling, constantly falling down. Anybody else falling down this week besides me? Anytime I tackle something in my own strength and my own ability that was intended to be spiritual, I tumble. Why? Because it's not about my strength, it's about Christ's strength in me. And as Paul told the church in Ephesus, right, it's Christ's strength in us. He's already told us in Ephesians 1, he said that when we come to know Christ, he gives us the gift of the Spirit, get this, as a deposit, guaranteeing all of our future inheritance. So the Spirit is in us. The question is, do we appropriate the power of the Holy Spirit? In other words, do we tap into the power under the hood? Most of the time we don't. And Paul is simply reminding them, you have the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's time to tap into that strength. But if we simply stop with those four very abrupt, somewhat cursed, almost sounds like a drill sergeant kind of statements, we miss the context of what Paul is saying. So his tone changes just a little bit as he moves into verse 14. Look what he says Let all that you do be done in what? In what? Absolutely. He says, be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong, but do it in love. Not your love. I don't know about you, I don't have the capacity to love unlovable people, do you? People annoy me most of the time. Anybody else? Holidays, gatherings, you mean I got to be around people? Listen, I know that I'm not a lovable person. You can ask my wife right? But I I praise God for people who love me with the love and the grace of Jesus because I know that I'm unlovable. I'm glad that God loves me even in my sin to love me the way that he does. So how are we supposed to love other people? Well, we don't have the capacity in our sin to love people. We're supposed to love each other with the love that God has given us. The presence of the Holy Spirit gives us a capacity beyond ourselves to love people the way Christ loves us. This has probably become the hardest task in our culture, hasn't it? And yet, what did Jesus say? His, his one thing, he said, man, this is the one characteristic that, that's going to help people identify that you are my disciples. In John chapter 13, when Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, this love, this Christ spirit indwelling love for one another, people are going to look at you as a church and they're going to realize you are my disciples because you have this unbelievable ability to love one another as unlovable people. Now listen, I think for the most part, y'all are pretty awesome. But you're not always the most lovable. Look at the person next to you and go, you're not the most lovable person all the time. Now, come on, really, say it like you mean it. We're not always the most lovable people. We just gotta be honest. You know, my wife has endured me through 30 years, almost 30 years of marriage, and she's loved me, listen, with the love of Jesus. Right? She has. She, she's demonstrated God's love to me and 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 has just been faithful to love me, but I know it's the spirit of God in her that gives her the capacity to love me like 364 and a half days of the year. Because life is tough and life is full of stuff. And without the presence of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying, look, it's not just your your build up the flesh, do your best to put a, a show and try to love people. No, he's like, look, this should be such a captivating love and grace of Jesus in us through the power and presence of his Holy Spirit. The creator, the sustainer of the universe takes up residence in us. He gives us a capacity to love that is way beyond ourselves. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. So this is the context of what Paul is saying. He's just spent a couple of chapters, right? Back in, verse, in chapter 13, it was all about love. Chapter 13 doesn't really define love. It tells us what love looks like when it's lived out in human relationships. But it's Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit in us that gives us the capacity to love those that are unlovable, which is us, each and every one of us, because we are sinners, And Romans 5, 8 simply says, but God demonstrates his own love for us. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. I love the way one Bible teacher kind of summarized these two verses, this idea of love. He says, love is meant to hold the whole argument together. Without love, you will not be alert and discerning, but rather narrow and suspicious. If you stand firm... Without love, you will be an isolated fanatic, ugly in temperament and intolerant toward the lost. Without love, to balance your maturity in Christ, you will be critical, judgmental, and harsh. And if you are strong and yet you have no love, you will lack the tenderness that will attract others to your bridled strength. What a great synopsis. Many of you are very familiar with a a quote by Pastor Rick Warren from Saddleback out in Lake Forest, California. You've seen it on the internet. You've seen it through social media. You've seen it posted different places. You may have even shared it once upon a time. But I want to put that quote in context and help us understand. Because back in 2012, Christian, um, Christian Post did an interview with Rick Warren. At the time, he was under a lot of criticism because he was, sort of opening doors of relationship with the Muslim community and the Jewish community and various other faith groups that were not Christian out in Southern California. And, and Rick had been participating. He goes to homes of Muslims and participates in feasts. He's recently been, had been to a number of Jewish festivals and, and just loving people. And so he was under a lot of criticism for that and so they asked him, and I, I just want to read the transcript of, the, of, of his interview. The, the interviewer asked him very specifically this question. Why do you think people who call themselves Christians sometimes say the most hurtful and hateful things about Muslims? This is what Rick said. He said, well, some of those folks probably aren't really Christians. Well, let's just, let's just throw everything off the table and throw it down, right? hey, they're criticizing me, but let's just get one thing straight. Those guys may not even really be Christians. So he said, I'm not worried about that. Then he goes on. Listen, he quotes 1 John 4.20, says, quote, if anyone says I love God yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen or he has not seen. And he says in 1 John 2.9, Says anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Then he says, I am not allowed to hate, I'm not allowed by Jesus to hate anyone. Great statement, right? Based on the truth of God's word, he says, I'm not allowed by Jesus to hate anyone. Then he gives us this quote. Then he went on to say, and this is what we see all the time, you can see it on the screen. Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear them or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. Can you take a stand for God's truth and still be tender and still be compassionate? Yes. And nobody... Nobody demonstrated that for us any better than Jesus. We draw such hard lines. And yes, there are some truths that are hard. But that's what Paul has been saying all through this letter. There are some hard lines and there are some soft lines. And how you deal with that in your public action affects the ministry and the grace of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying people. So very clearly, he is saying, absolutely, be watchful, be discerning, stand firm in the faith, grow in the Word of God, act like men, grow to spiritual maturity in Christ, act like a mature believer, be strong, but let all that you do be done in love. Man, church, if we can get this right, we can get a lot of stuff right. He jumps then in the next section. First, he's talking about the action of our public lives. Then he dives into this next few verses. And what I really see in here is the attitude of our public or of our private liberty. What is the attitude of our private liberty? And if, if you just read those next few verses, you can kind of read through it and go, okay, that's interesting, but I have no idea what he's saying. Because he's talking about different people who've come to know Christ and, and this is where the first church was in that area and all that. And it sounds really great, but to put it all in context, can I just highlight some words from verses, f- verse 15 down through verse 20? And I'm going to just kind of read it and I'm going to elaborate on some of the key relational words that Paul is bringing out about what it means to be a church and what it means to be in relationship with one another. Are you ready? You have to listen quickly. Are you, are you ready? <laughs> okay. He says, verse 15, now I urge you, brothers. Brothers, let's stop there. It, it implies that you and you are indeed a follower of Jesus Christ with me. He says, you know. Well, again, there's an implied awareness that as brothers, as fellow believers in Jesus Christ, you're aware of what's going on around you. That the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted, there's a great word, speaks to relationship. It's the idea of being determined or that they have arranged their lives around one another to care for one another. They've devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Verse 16, be subject, great word. It literally is, is carrying the idea of being obedient or subordinate. Why? Because these guys have so devoted themselves to the faith and the caring for others that you are to be obedient and subordinate to them because they are spiritual leaders demonstrating through their service how to care for others. So he's saying you should be obedient and subordinate. Be subject to those such as these and to every fellow worker in labor. Verse 17 I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus. How many of you named your child Fortunatus? And Achaias, because they have, I love this, they have made up. See, we don't have enough Greek, well, we don't have enough words in the English to really understand all the Greek, because there were so many more words in the Greek language, and so uh, our translations don't always give us all the depth that's involved right here. But, but I love what he says, because they made up. That, that literally carries with it the idea that they, they have come behind, they've made up for a deficit, they, they've been caring in such a way that they're, that they're coming along, they're coming up behind and they're making up for a deficit of, of care and love that was taking place. Verse 18, for they refreshed, another great word. It means to, to take ease or to give rest. Have you ever had someone just come alongside in times of stress and strife and just come into your home and come into your life and just their very presence and their care for you, all of a sudden you just felt refreshed and you felt a little more at ease? Times of crisis, people step in and they say, we got this. We got this. We're going to love you. We're going to take care of you. you go, go take a nap. Go take a nap. Some of you just need to go take a nap, and you need the body of Christ to, to be so aware that you can be refreshed, that we can come along and, and, and be refreshed. Verse 18, midway through, he says, give recognition. That idea is acknowledge or to respect, to be fully acquainted. I love this idea, right? That, that if we're going to be recognized, that we have to be fully acquainted with one another. Verse 19, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Now, here it is four times in the next couple of verses. He's going to use this specific Greek word for greetings, and it means to be presumed in union. So he's sending greetings to the church because there's a presumption that they are in union and fellowship with one another, that there's genuine care, that they're being refreshed, that they're in submission and care for one another. So four times he uses this, greetings. Aquila and Priscilla together, another wonderful word denoting close union, or this word in the Greek actually brings completeness, that there's completeness in their union because they are together with the church in their house, send you hearty, get this, not just greetings, hearty greetings, abundant or plenteous in the Lord. Verse 20, all the brothers send you greetings and then greet one another with a holy kiss. What in the world was going on in the church in Corinth that Paul had to tell them to greet one another? They're gathering, but there's no union. They're gathering, but there's no fellowship. They're gathering, but there's no care. They're gathering, but there's no awareness of the needs of others around you. Every one of us, how many many of you in this place are on social media of one form or another? Come on, let me see your hands. Raise your hands high. Loud and proud. Here we go. Okay, how many of you, because you're friends, right, with people or followers of people on social media, you're friends with them, but you've seen them in public and you've avoided them? Come on, be honest, right? We're friends. I follow them on social media. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're on Snapchat. You know, we're on Facebook. And, and we're friends, but then you see them out in public. It's like, oh, my gosh right? You're at Walmart. It's like, oh, so you you duck around the corner. All of a sudden, I need something from automotive. I'm in the donut aisle, right? But all of a sudden, I need a, a tire iron or something. I mean, what in the world was going on in the church that Paul had to say, look, greet one another, care for one another? He's reminding them that you are not the church. You are a church. You're part of this bigger body of believers, And you need to be in fellowship with one another. You need to be caring for one another, ministering to one another. You need to be aware of what's going on in the lives of others. And he's not just sharing information. He's not just sharing nice feelings. He's challenging them in this close of the letter of what it means to live as a church that's honoring Jesus Christ. Hang on to this phrase because I want you to understand it's not a strength to be so independent that you need no one. It is not a strength. Nowhere in the Scripture do you find the point where you grow up and you become so strong and mature in your faith that you need no one. It is nowhere in Scripture because God created us to be in fellowship and relationship with other people. Because none of us was ever intended to do this life alone. Let me just summarize the last few chapters that this is set in. Chapter 11, uh, Pastor Scott, when when he was teaching on that about the Lord's Supper, I love what he said. He said, there can be no communion without union. How do we share at the Lord's Supper if we're not in union and fellowship with one another? Chapter 13, all about love. This spirit-empowered love to do what? To build up the body. Went right into chapter 14, talking about spiritual gifts. What are the purpose of spiritual gifts? The manifestation of the spirit to build one another up. That was the whole context. Let me share a quote from Pastor Scott from just a couple of weeks ago. In chapter 14, he said, listen, careful. If we are going to dare and be courageous to build God's church, God's way, we have to know one another and build one another up know one another do you know one another how can we build one another up if we don't know one another he went on to say can you imagine what it would be like if we came to church with eyes to see what's going on in the lives of the people around us so that we can use whatever gifts God has given us to then impact whatever is happening in their life this is the goal of God's church Unity, communion, fellowship, building one another up. Why? To move one another to spiritual maturity so that we can reach other people and attach them to the hope and the glory of Jesus Christ that we so enjoy. But here's the reality. Distance and loneliness are a stark reality in in our culture and in church. I want to take a poll this morning And I want to take a poll, but here's here's the condition. I don't want to see a hand. Because I'm going to ask you some pretty hard questions. And I don't want to see a hand, but I've been praying about this time, and I'm really asking the Holy Spirit to step on our toes pretty hard. So I want to take a poll, and I want you just to answer the questions, okay? How many of you this morning, as you walked on campus, met someone brand new, someone you never knew before this morning when you came into this place? Again, no show of hands. You are so sensitive to the needs as you're growing up to maturity in Christ, you're so sensitive to the needs of others, you're going, hey, I want to meet someone that I never knew before. I want to bring ease. I want to bring care. I want to bring comfort. I want to bring union. How about those around you within arm's reach or possibly two, maybe three rows, either in front or in back or to the side? How many of you took the initiative to meet and engage those around you because they were the ones who were gonna be in close proximity as we enjoyed a great time of worship. But if there's no union, how do we worship as a church? We're, We're individuals tucked in our rows and we're missing the union and the fellowship that God intends of his church. If we're not even willing to reach and engage those a row or two within reach. And we're all about public space and private space. And so even as I look through the room, we have lots of empty seats. But every week, I see people who come in after we've started, which is usually about two thirds of the room, um, after we've started, a little prompt to be here when we start. But they come in and we're standing, we're in worship and, and they're looking for a place to sit. And we have enough free space in between, but people are hunting for space because we don't want to get too close to one another. I want to be with my church family, but I don't want to be too close. As the old ancient proverb says, man who does not shower and goes to church sits in his own pew. And so, yeah, no charge for that one. So we, we just sit. Some of you will get that this afternoon and go, sits in his own pew. Now I got it. Right, but but we gotta have our personal space. We've got to have a chair or two in between us, and instead of just clumping up, well, let me just encourage you, when you come into this place, move to the middle because people are gonna come in behind you and they're gonna need a place to come in. And and when they come in and we're worshiping and they're looking, there's two or three or four in the middle, but you know, our ends are full. How, how do we do with that? Some of you are in a small group. Do you love your small group? Some of you are not in a group. I would say the majority of people in our church who are not connected in a small group, I would say are connected because no one's personally invited them to a group. Are you in a group? Do you love your group? Do you love the Christian fellowship that you share? Do you love it enough that you're growing to spiritual maturity in Christ so that you are so aware of the needs of others that you're saying, you need to come be a part of this. Oh, but Pastor Dave, you don't understand. Our small group is closed. In other words, we're, we're so full, we don't, you know, when I think about my group, man, we don't really have a, another chair in the living room. Here's, here's my easy, easy answer for that get another living room. Two, guess what? Two living rooms of people who are growing in Jesus Christ can seat more than one living room, and four can do better than two. And 12 can do better than 6. You see, sometimes we grow in our own community and we just love being Christians together. And and there's nothing wrong with that. Please understand, there's nothing wrong with getting with other believers and loving our time together and growing in Christ. But listen, here's what I want you to understand. Relationship is the vehicle. Discipleship is the destination. Paul has already said, grow up, move to maturity in Christ. And if you're moving towards spiritual maturity in Christ, guess what? Mature people look to the needs of the younger people around them. I've learned this as a parent. It was a whole lot easier being a, a fourth grader at Little Fort Elementary and worrying all about my needs. But then I grew up and I became a dad and God gave me three incredible, very gifted little sinners. And I started learning to care for the needs of others. Why? Because that's what mature people do. Mature people are concerned about the kid that's climbing on top of the car or on top of the ladder or standing at the edge of the building getting ready to fall off. Mature people are concerned about the needs of younger people. Guess what? As we grow to spiritual maturity in Christ, we should be more aware of the needs of those that are less mature spiritually. Are you growing to spiritual maturity in Christ or are you simply growing old in Christ? We love being in Christian community and listen to our K-love and eating Christian chicken and doing all the things that we do as Christian people, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if that is simply our destination, we go, hey, we're in relationship with each other. We're all in the vehicle, but we miss the point that the vehicle, right, of relationship is taking us to a destination, which is spiritual maturity and discipleship in Christ. So some of us need to grow and we need to go. We need to be released. And Paul is saying, look, guess what? There's a household of Stephanus. They were the first converts in Achaean. They devoted themselves to the service of the saints, and they were meeting in homes. But then guess what? Others began to come along, and they began to plant new churches and new places for others to meet. Why? Because the body of Christ is growing, and new people need to be attached so Paul is simply reminding us that, that, that being a member of the local church isn't about entitlements. It's not about perks. It's not about demanding personal privileges. Instead, the real responsibility and the joy of being a church member is to serve and to care for the needs of others. Truth be told, we all want to be the recipient of the love and grace of a church. We all want to be the recipient of God's goodness and his love, but perhaps we don't want those expectations to be placed on us. I want to come to church, and I I just sort of want people to love me and care for me, but I, I don't want those burdens placed on me, but I want others to do that for me. I was trying to figure out a good way to sort of just drill this home in a way that you're going to walk out of here and go, I remember this. And I remembered a video that I saw a couple of months ago And I'm gonna roll about 20 seconds of this video. It's quick, it's short, so you gotta pay attention. Everybody with me? Say, I'm with you, Pastor Dave. All right, pay attention, here you go. Is this the most adorable thing you've ever seen? (laughs) So here's my point. Take that away or we're gonna be distracted for the rest of the afternoon. Here's my point. Everybody wants to be the little boy. Nobody wants to be the puppy. Okay? We show up at church, and when I watch that video, because he's, he's running, and it's so cool, and these little puppies, seriously, is that the most adorable thing? Don't you want to be chased by those puppies, and then he trips, and he falls, and he's laying on one, and, but they just keep loving him, and, and I think that's the way we go to church sometimes. It's like, I'm walking to church, and I see, oh, look, all these people are coming. Oh, look how they love me. Look how they care for me. And then he gets up from there. You can find it online. He gets up, and he starts to run, and all these puppies start chasing him. And I thought, boy, you know, I left church. Now I'm going out. Now it's Monday. Now it's Tuesday. Look, these people are still chasing me. They're still pursuing me. That's the way it ought to be for the church. Every one of us need those people in our life. Those people that see us as followers of Jesus, right, wagging their tail. And the the next bit's funny because it goes further, and you just see these little puppies, man, their tails going 100 miles an hour, you know? Now, listen, I believe we have some great puppies here. Some of you are incredible at just loving people and going above and beyond. But listen, the responsibility is every single follower of Jesus Christ needs to be engaging people in that same manner. Everybody. Everybody. Are you hearing me? Everybody. If you're here and you hear my voice, you're included. Everybody. That needs to be us as we're growing to spiritual maturity in Christ. So here we go, right? The action of our public lives, the attitude of our private liberties as we're growing in Christ to honor and care for one another. And then Paul closes with an affection of his personal love. There's a change in the manuscript here because Paul would have been using a secretary to write down his letter. He would have been basically just stating what he wanted, the church in Corinth, and he would have had a scribe or a secretary sitting there writing everything because they are legible and neat. But at verse 21, his penmanship changes, and the letter actually changes because Paul grabs the quill, as has been his practice. You also see it in Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. He says, I write this with my own hand, because as was his custom, he would grab and he would pen words in his very own handwriting to just sort of solidify. It was like his seal. Yes, these are my words. Yes, I wrote this letter to you. And so this is what he says as he writes with his own hand. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Ooh. The, the word is literally anathema, and it means to be cursed. So he, he's not letting anybody off the hook here, but he's not naming names. He's simply saying, look, you can sit around and play religious games, or you can fall in love with Jesus. If you choose not to love Jesus, you're going to be cursed. There's a place of separation for all eternity for those that don't know Christ. That's what he's saying. And then he uses the, the old Hebrew word, Maranatha, It literally means uh, our Lord come. And, and he didn't he wrote it in hebrew because they would have known it it was a familiar word of praise at that point in time so he literally said if anyone has no love for the lord anathema maranatha you're going to be cursed but come lord jesus come quickly right so it was kind of a a curse but yet a praise for those that are following christ and then verse 23 the grace of the lord jesus be with you my love be with you all in christ jesus So first he gives this salutation, and and the word that Paul used for greeting there is not the same word that he used four times previously to the church. Uh, The word that he used was really more of a salutation, a greeting, personal greeting, personal affection. My personal affection, my greeting to you from me personally to you as followers of Christ and Paul just drilled home the fact that they were accepted just the way they were, false and all. Isn't it good to know that you're accepted, false and all? It's great to know that God loves us, that our, our church family loves us, they care for us. And, and Paul, it, with all of his harshness, was just communicating his love. See, I think we all need people like Paul in our life. where where the proverb says an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. It it says, better a slap from a friend than a kiss from an enemy. Wouldn't you rather have someone that genuinely knows you and loves you and speaks hard truth to you than simply sugarcoat it and let your life be destroyed? That's exactly what Paul is doing. He said, I would rather speak the truth to you in grace and love and mercy and, and let you know that you are accepted with faults and all Verse 23, with the grace of the Lord Jesus. And then 24, my love be with you all. His great affection as as a spiritual parent to this church, he's saying, my love, I, I love you guys so much. I love you enough to speak the truth to you. I love you enough to say the hard things. I love you enough to chastise you. I love you enough to correct you. But I love you so much. Isn't that a great truth? Let me close with one simple story. Most of you in this room weren't around to remember the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. But there was a young runner from Tanzania, his name was John Akwari. And and John came to Mexico City to run the marathon. And now Paul's already talked about running the race, right? Run in such a way as to get the prize. And so as he closes the letter, I think it's appropriate just to bring this in because when I think of the story of John, he came to Mexico City, all the way from Tanzania, and he got on the starting line and he took off. And about halfway through the marathon, give me the picture of John if you would. As he's running through the marathon, about halfway through it, about 19 kilometers, as guys were jockeying for position, here's John Aquari, and, and he was sort of hit and fell and trampled in the midst of this big pack of runners. John went down, scraped up his shoulder, scraped up much of his his legs, completely dislocated his knee. And John got up and he kept running. And he kept running and he kept running. The race was over and about an hour and five minutes after the race was done, John was making his final turn and re-entering the stadium, as you see. And you could see that most of the people were gone by this point. But John Aquari was finishing the race. Dislocated, knee, scraped, bruised, battered, torn. It would have been easier just to quit. But later, as a reporter was asking John Aquari, he says, why did you get up and finish the race? And I love what John said. He simply said this. He said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. See, it didn't matter if he was first or if he was last. He was going to do exactly what he was called to do. You see, as followers of Jesus Christ, we don't have to be first. We have to run the race that God has given us, and we have to finish well.